Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Matthew Heinemann's new biographical drama, A Private War. Based on Arash Amel's Vanity Fair article, Marie Colvin's Private War, the film follows the extraordinary life of celebrated war correspondent Marie Colvin, whose fearless desire to give voice to the voiceless and show the true cost of war drove her to the front lines of conflicts all across the globe. A Private War is Mr. Heinemann's narrative feature directorial debut. His other credits include the documentary feature Escape Fire, The Fight to Rescue American Healthcare, and episodes of the television documentary miniseries The Trade. He is a two-time winner of the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Documentary for his 2017 film City of Ghosts and his 2015 film Cartel Land, which also received a Primetime Emmy Award for Exceptional Merit in Documentary Filmmaking and an Academy Award nomination for Best Documentary Feature. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Heinemann spoke with director Jeremy Kagan about filming A Private War. During their conversation, Mr. Heinemann discusses why he felt a kinship to Marie Colvin, the year he spent researching and getting the approval of Ms. Colvin's friends and family to make the film, and the adjustments he made coming from the documentary world. Devastating experience. Not an easy journey that you take and that uh, she took and that we take. And so thank you for challenging us. But my first question for you is what do you do with fear? Oof. I don't know. Um, probably handle it in a similar way that, that she did. Um, avoid it. Um, Except in the history of you as a filmmaker, avoiding it doesn't seem to be the thing you do. I mean, you I walked not into uh, war zones and uh, the cartel and making that movie in Mexico and the uh, City of Ghosts. You literally were in spaces where she was. Yeah. That's not avoiding it. Oh, sorry. I thought I meant like at home. I think when oh. I get home, when, when, <laughs> when, I get, when I get home, I avoid it. Um, <laughs> I'll take both. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that's part of why I made this movie is that I felt a huge kinship to her and her experience and you know in, in the in the films that I've made yeah I've been sort of drawn to go to these places to tell these stories um in a very sort of perverse way and wanting to be in shootouts and be in meth labs and be in torture chambers and be in whatever it is um and obviously in the name of the film or the story but then also that strange feeling of coming home to New York um, and going to a party the next day, and so you know, I, I very much empathize with 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 who you know who she was, and um, for me, the film is is quite quite personal. But that that journey for you, just look, there's all kind of movies people can make. Why walk into the danger zone? What is it? I mean, is this. Did you when you were young? Is this a pull? Like it seems to be an, even an addiction as you suddenly suggest or the, you and your writers suggest. What pulls you into the danger zone? Why do that as the filmmaker? 
Are we talking about me or her? You right okay. now. I don't. I don't like talking about me. Let's talk about her. No, yeah, okay. you did talk about her. That's the movie. Talk about you. As um, the I don't know. I guess I'm. I'm just drawn to stories that scare me or push me or provoke me, and um, you know, I feel like it's a huge. I feel a huge responsibility as a filmmaker to to tell these stories, and um, I'm not particularly drawn to danger or, or necessarily like danger. Um, for me, these topics that I was exploring in Cartel Land, obviously the Mexican drug wars and, and City of Ghosts, ISIS and you know extremism and these journalists trying to combat it. Um, so I guess it was it was the topics that drew me in, and it just happened to be what it was. Um, but it was it was always you know in an attempt to take these very large, complicated topics that were dominating the headlines and trying to find, you know, human stories within them that hopefully in just a small little way created a little sense of empathy, um, for, again, for these dark topics that people often sort of keep at arm's length. Did you have and do you have other filmmakers whose work you admire that in fact has inspired you to do this kind of work? If you say, here's a mentor, this filmmaker, that's an example of I want to follow in those footsteps. Um, I guess in my documentary work, uh, yeah, I mean the the Maisels, you know, Panna Baker. I mean, I come from a you know an attempt at least to to shoot my films in a cinema verite way, and um, that's what I've you know attempted to do, um, and obviously tried to bring some of that ethos into this first narrative film. Let's talk about that transition. Um, in many ways, in City of Ghosts, these are the real people who are experiencing the horror of war. Um, and your work, those of us who've seen this movie, it's incredibly intimate. You are really with those people, actually watching them lose people they love. And you're right there. Here in a drama, you're recreating that. What was your, as you step back, if you can, I know you're in the midst of the, the cycle of talking about this movie, but as you step back, how do you see the differences? And how do you see the work, having been there as a documentarian, now recreating something like this as a dramatist, how you pull that knowledge in? Um, I mean, I say this a lot when I talk about my docs, is, and I actually heard Al Maisel say this when I was 21 years old, um, that if you end up with the story you started with, you weren't listening along the way. And I think that's good advice for life, and I think that's good advice for filmmaking. It's something that I hold dear to my heart at every step along the way when, when making my docs. Um, and again, I tried to bring that same ethos to this process. Um, you know, obviously it was a completely different experience. You know, I'm, I'm used to sh shooting alone, sh taking my own sound, downloading my own footage. Um, so to have departments for those <laughs> things was a, was a strange um, but amazing experience. Um, but again, I tried to create you know, really real and authentic environments. So take, for example, all the war zones, which we shot in Jordan, 
um, I worked predominantly with with non actors surrounding you know Rosamond and Jamie. Um, so you know what you see there are, are refugees who are living in Jordan that I spent weeks and weeks finding and interviewing and casting. Um, so you know the scene in the in the mass grave, for example, those women who are wailing were really from Iraq, reliving real trauma and and um, you know, and at the end of that scene, um, when they start pounding their chests and, and chanting a prayer for the dead, you know, that wasn't scripted, that wasn't um, planned, that just happened. Um, and I love, you know, that's what I love in, about making documentaries, and I try to do that as much as possible, and there's so many examples of that in this film, where just real life happened and we were able to capture it. And um, you know, in, in, in Syria, you know, in the end of the film, those two women, uh, that, that Rosamond Marie interviews, um, in the widow's basement, those women were telling their own real stories. Um, again, those tears were real tears. That second woman, when she says, you know, I want the world, I don't just want this to be words on, on, on a paper. I want the world to understand what we're going through. There's a whole generation that's being lost. It's obviously her speaking to Rosamond, but that's her speaking to all of us. Um, in the hospital in Holmes, the man who brings the, the young boy in, who, who dies and then ends up going on to CNN, um, he lost his nephew uh, at a protest in Holmes. Um, he was shot by a sniper and bled out in front of him. So when he came into that set, you know, that emotion was about as real and authentic uh, emotion as I've ever, I've ever seen. And again, those tears are real tears. And when he yells, you know, why, God, why, 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 that's him. And so it was a really overwhelming experience, I think, for, for, for Rosman and Jamie to experience this level of uh, emotion on set. I don't think it's something that they'd ever really experienced. Um, and it was quite difficult. And actually in that scene, Roz, sort of walked, 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 walked off set, uh, but she couldn't handle it. And, and, and she said to me, you know, is this okay? You know, are, we're kind of blurring the lines here. Is this, is this right what we're doing? Um, and I said to her, this is something I deal with on a daily basis in making my documentaries. And, you know, they wouldn't be here if they didn't want their story to be told. Um, I know it's very hard and I totally understand and empathize with what you're experiencing, but so it's okay. He wants he wants to be there, and he wants again the world to know what what he went through. When you were casting, looking at those women very specifically, the, there's a difference, and maybe you can talk to a little bit of this. When you cast, for example, the young men who are the in City of Ghosts, I know I'm referencing this movie again, but they're individuals that we spend, you spend time with them. How many people did you interview before you decided on them? How many and how did you interview these women in order to say, I want you to be in this movie and relive this? Do you remember that? Um, it's funny you say that because people, you know, it's sort of, people don't like talking about casting and documentaries, um, but that's really what you do do. You, you find people and you follow them and you choose them and you choose where to put your camera and, you know, it doesn't just edit itself. Um, so, but I, I'd read about 
this group rock is being slaughtered silently in City of Ghosts, and I, um, you know, they had a number of different characters that I could choose from, and I was drawn to, you know, a few of them, um, partially based on who I could actually access, um, partially based on who I thought, you know, was was good on, you know, who were good on camera, and you know, very, you know, a number of other factors. But and the women, but now, but now you're casting women who are. You don't speak their language. These are um, people who literally live this. Uh, different from walking into a situation and having your camera as a documentarian. There they are. Here, you're casting them to then recreate this. How did you decide on who was going to do this? Um, you know, we went through probably dozens and dozens of people, um, dozens of women. I mean, it depends on which who you're referring to, but in general, um, I'm thinking of that very scene where the women are who who mourn after the bodies are brought out of the ground. That gr that group. Um, that was a little bit less specific because they didn't have. I mean, one of them had a speaking role. Um, so you know, I probably spoke to two dozen women um, to understand their stories um, and to also see if they could, you know, emote and and how they would emote, um, which was obviously a very difficult thing to do. Um, but then more specifically with the women in Syria, I really, you know, we had scripted that scene and had a general sense of what, based on Marie's real story uh, that she reported on for the Sunday Times, you know, I knew that generally the sort of hit points, uh, but it turned out that I actually found two women that literally almost word for word from the script, um, had those similar stories. Um, and so... Were there people looking for you? Like, if, if, if we're working on, as you know, working on a dramatic picture, you're going to hire people or you're, going to, you're casting people. Did you have local casting people that were searching out to then bring here, here 20 women you should see? How did that all work? Yeah, we had a, we had a little local casting director in Jordan, um, and she knew what I wanted and, and how I wanted to do it. And, yeah, so, we, we you know, we'd spend days and days and days um, bringing people in and, um, interviewing them and you know having them you know, either play out the scene or read lines or depending on what what was needed. Um, in the choice to not make a documentary about Marie, which I suspect you could have, um, what was your process in saying, okay, I'm stepping from this genre of filmmaking into the dramatic genre? Well, the docs that I make are are have have been thus far present day docs. You know, I haven't made sort of retrospective films, so I make films that are happening in real time. So that obviously was not an option um, with Marie, unfortunately. Um, I had made this film, City of, uh, excuse me, Cartel Land. Um, I was sent a number of different scripts um, afterwards, and then when I received an early draft of this script, I, again, as I said before, it spoke to me, and so I, was luckily um, attached and um, spent about a year researching it like a doc, you know, reading everything I could about her. Um, her friends and her colleagues were quite reticent, honestly, about the film. Um, it, it was it was very raw, uh, despite being you know a number of years later, and they um, sort of sort of gained their trust. It was very similar to the process of doing so in a doc. Um, but that was, you know, quite important. You know, getting Paul Conroy, who Jamie Dornan plays, on board was was immensely important. Um, getting Sean Ryan, who Tom Hollander plays, her editor, 
on board was, was hugely important, getting our friends and colleagues. So again, spent about a year you know, walking the streets of London you know, and, and you know, again, reading everything I could. Um, and also from the source article, the Vanity Fair article that this was loosely based on um, and going through all the transcripts and stuff from, that led to that piece and then used all that information to work with our screenwriter to rewrite the script. And let's talk about that relationship. As you just quoted Al Maisel's talking about if you were going to end up with the same film you were going to start with. Now, in a dramatic movie, oftentimes we're not looking for some, it to be that different from that story that's on that page. It's obviously going to come alive because it's going to get cast and shot and be different. What was the, sh the sh shift for you in thinking, okay, I now am going to see a script that's going to be a whole story rather than I'm going to get in there and who knows what's going to happen? How did you adjust to that? And how do you sort of feel about it having now gone through that, that different approach to material? Um, yeah, it was, it was obviously much different. Um, you know, the cliched, obviously, the comparison is, you know, docs are made in the edit room and, and narratives are made in, in the script. But, you know, I, I, I tried as much as possible to, again, as, as we talked about before, to, to allow for improvisation, to allow for accidents to happen, to create atmospheres where, you know, our actors felt free to move and emote. And, and a lot of the, the tone of the scenes shifted um, when we got, to actually shooting them, and that was really exciting. Um, you know, I mentioned a few of them, but you know, I, I yeah, I mean, I tried to bring that thing that I hopefully know how to do in my doc world to this. You yourself have been the camera person for much of the, your docs. Here, I assume you may have worked with more than one camera, and if you did, what was that experience for you? Um. I was very, very lucky to be able to work with Bob Richardson, um, who's obviously shot a few films in his career. Um, you know, he started out, started out shooting docs. Um, that's why Oliver Stone hired him to shoot Salvador. He shot Born on Fourth of July, Platoon. Um, so he, you know, knew a few things about shooting war films. Um, but we spent months you know, sending films to each other, um, sending reference imagery to each other, um, talking about how we wanted this to look and feel. Um, and obviously, you know, there's a sort of docu-style to how we shot it. You know, he he's still operating. He's, um, you know, a lot of it was handheld. Um, and, and, you know, that was something we, we talked a lot about. Um, we used almost predominantly natural lighting uh, in the war zones. Uh, um, so, you know, and we were shooting in the winter, so it was quite tough. You know, there wasn't a lot of sunlight, so, you know, we didn't have a lot of chances at some of these scenes. Um, and we were shooting almost every day in a different location in Jordan. So it was a quite a hectic uh, shoot. I think that was honestly the hardest thing for me transitioning is I'm used to being out in the middle of nowhere with nobody telling me what to do um, or, or not really being, you know, you're, you're cognizant of a budget, obviously, when you're making a doc, but you're not like, you know, I could shoot for four more days and that's not really going to cost that much more because, you know, it's me. <laughs> um, but, you know, the sort of 
intersection of art and commerce, which is obviously inherently part of, of making a narrative film, that, that was honestly probably the hardest thing for me to adjust to. Um, you know, if we want to turn that way, you know, we might miss that scene. Like that, those discussions that we all have when making narrative films, um, that took some adjusting to. Well, let's talk about your casting, uh, Miss Pike, as your heroine. How did that go, and what was that process? And did you do some rehearsing with her? Talk about how you cast her first, and how you worked with her. She um, actually approached me. Um, she came to a screening of City of Ghosts. Um, we had breakfast the next day, and she sort of came at me with the same sort of rigor and passion that I felt like Marie would have uh, with an article. Um, she had this unbelievably deep understanding of, of this woman, um, even at that early stage. We both wrote each other essays on who is Marie Colvin. Um, what were in the essays? Can't tell you. Well, give us give us an idea. I mean, the uh, film, what you saw. But would, would it be a description of you know a, a character analysis? Would it be? Yeah, it was sort of a yeah, it was a sort of a character analysis of of who we thought she was and what she stood for, and um, and they were remarkably similar. Um, and after that, I knew that I had my Marie, and it was it was amazing working with her. Um, had you directed, I know you directed in the sense of even in documentaries with you're still directing the individuals that are there, oftentimes you're talking to them as they are, quote, acting, except they're playing themselves. This is a different experience for you. And what did you use to give yourself the confidence to be able to do that? And what do you think you've learned in the process? Yeah, I mean, I, I never went to film school. Um, I have no formal training or really business even being up here, I guess. But um, <laughs> um, some probably combination of hubris and naivete. Um, uh, Sundance was incredibly gracious, honestly, and, and they uh, knew that I was making this film and they helped support me in doing a little workshop here in L.A., a little, I think, three or four day workshop and uh, working with actors. Um, that, was, that was really helpful and mainly helpful, honestly, because I was forced to act, which was an unbearable experience. Um, and hope no one ever sees whatever uh, that, whatever happened during those few days. Um, but it made me really, yeah, understand in that relationship. But I think, honestly, in the docs that I make, a huge part of that relationship with your subject is trust. And I found that skill to be quite transferable to working with, with actors, is I feel like a huge part of my relationship with Rosamond and Jamie and Tom and Stanley and you know, the rest of my cast, and especially also the, the, you know, the, um, all the extras that we worked with, was just developing a level of trust where they could be themselves and where they could you know, screw up um, and, and make mistakes and improvise and... Um, you know, we could challenge each other. And that's what I love about making films is that process of sort of leapfrogging each other. Um, were there scenes where you were, both of you, let's say, struggling with as you were shooting and therefore I need to adjust this performance? I don't know if you had rehearsal. First of all, did you have rehearsal time? And if you did, what did you do during it? We never had like a full table read. We never had, a, we didn't have a lot of time. I mean, this is not a huge budget 
film, so we didn't have a lot of time for things that you normally have time for. Um, so a lot of it, you know, we'd, we'd occasionally rehearse the day before, but a lot of it was, was you know, that day. Now, if you, um, want, if you wanted to make an adjustment, and there may be scenes, maybe you can tell us, uh, this scene was a challenge for both of us, or, or for some of the other actors. How did you go about doing that? And were there challenge scenes for you? Oh, I mean, tons of scenes. I, I think every, every scene was a challenge. Um, I found the, the, the stuff in London um, to be more challenging, I guess, if I was going to characterize it. I found the, the, the sort of war zone stuff to be more natural for based on my own experience. And um, I think that the biggest change, and then I'll answer the question, the biggest change from when I came on board to the first draft of the script was to make it a deeply personal journey. Um, and for me, the film is not a biopic. It's a, it's a sort of psychological thriller and trying to understand that headspace of what drives this, what drove this woman, um, why did she do what she did, and and honestly, the effect that that had on her, and so exploring that that interior space, exploring PTSD, um, exploring the trauma that she had experienced, um, was something that was really important to me. Um, but 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 personifying that and and exploring that on camera. Was a was a very difficult thing, um, and so you know the scenes where you know Rosamond is you know becoming unhinged, um, you know th th those are those are those are tough scenes to shoot. And th there's one example I think when she's when you have a, a bunch of jump cuts with her um, at one particular moment. Is that an example of? we shot this and we went into the editing room and we discovered this scene, or was that intentional? And if it was intentional, how did that come about in your thinking? Yeah, I mean, that was uh, both intentional and discovered, I guess, is the short answer. I mean, I, you know, that, that was basically, you know, one line in the script. You know, Marie writes an article. Um, but that wasn't that interesting to me, um, her just writing the article. And so... We'd actually shot the mass grave scene, if, if we're, we're referring to the same scene, the mass grave scene the day before, which was a really emotional, as we talked about, scene to shoot um, that played out like a verite scene in a dock. And we shot it in one day and followed the sun and you know dig, dug the hole, and it all played out in real time, almost as you, you see it on screen. So the next day is when we shot in the hotel room um, when she's actually writing that article. And... Uh, that particular scene was at the end of the day. Um, I, I basically let the whole crew go and just kept Bob, sound man, me, um, and I don't know, probably a couple other people, but let most of the crew go and just locked off the camera in this sort of almost voyeuristic way that, because I wanted to sort of feel like we shouldn't be in that room with her um, and, and, and we shouldn't see that moment when she when she's away from everybody and to see how she's interpret, interpreting um, the trauma of that day. Um, and so I literally just let, we locked off the camera and it, we just rolled for about 12 minutes and, and let her, you know, we, t we talked a lot about it before Did that. Did you talk, by the way, while it was rolling? Did you speak to each other? Didn't talk at all while it was rolling. We talked a lot before. Um, she asked me a lot about my own experiences 
Um, you know, I've I've had panic attacks and other things myself. Um, so you know, I, I shared a lot of that with her. I don't know why I shared that with you. Um, <laughs> uh, so you know, it, yeah, we 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 were quite close, and we talked a lot about um, that headspace and and yeah. And there are a couple of times besides that scene. There's a number of other times where she does break down, and. I'm always wondering when we do a scene like that, what happens on take two, and whether there even is one. Um, did that? Were there moments when you both felt okay? You, let's let's push it further. Do you remember? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think a lesson that I learned very early on in in interviewing people for docs. Um, is that to me the most magical moments are the moments often where you don't ask a question, where you just, you know, so often when you watch people do interviews, it's just, you know, you're just rifling questions. And to me, the most beautiful moments and the most, you know, challenging and often poetic moments are those in which you don't ask a question and you just sit there. And you just sit there. And then you have to, then, they, then they, that forces them to ruminate and that forces them to often come back with something that, that you prodding them won't, won't um, elicit. And I found that to be something that was quite interesting to do in this sense. So I often, you know, after she gave her line or do her action, just keep the camera rolling just to see what she would do. Um, and she knew, you know, she obviously caught on to that I was doing this. Uh, so she was forced to prepare to, to, to do that. And that, you know, there's so many different examples of that um, throughout the film. When you were in your editing room, as, you know, as we were just speaking to Doc sometimes being discovered there, did you find that that also applies to making a dramatic feature? Uh, and how? How, how, did, how, did the editing, how did the editing experience here differ, if at all, from the editing experiences that you've had when you've been working on docs? Um, extremely similar and extremely different. Um, I think we got to a rough cut much quicker because you obviously have a script to, to, <laughs> to base it off of. Um, but again, I, you know, it's that those you know, moments of discovery in the edit room that I love. Um, and and I think the language of the that interior headspace, the language of those nightmares, the language um, of 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 what plagued her, um, and how we jumped between places, um, you know, that was some of that was was premeditated, um, but but some of that was you know dis discovered in that room for sure. Let's talk one, one last subject, which is about music. Um, a lot of docs recently feel that they need to be wall-to-wall -wall music in order to have the emotion which the doc is afraid of not having. I know that that's not the way you work, because that's not true in your docs. There's silences in your docs that are incredibly powerful. Interestingly enough, there are moments here that have music accompaniment to give us an emotional feel, that I wonder, as you think about it, if you step back, hmm, 
would I have put music if that were a doc? But this is a different form, and therefore it's more appropriate. Or did this dialogue go through your process as you were working with music? Actually, to be honest, there's more music in my docs than there were, were in this movie. Um, you know, there's 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 plenty of moments in this film where where the music is sort of more sound design than actual score, and there's there's not that many moments when the when the music really sort of pokes out and says hi. Um, it, you know, and that was important to me. I, it was the same composer that I worked with on my last couple of films. Um, you know, Scott Salinas, who's a you know very talented composer, um, and one of the things I love about him is it's always about the scene. It's always about the film. It's always about the moment. It's not about him. It's not about being heard. Um, and it's it's always story first. And so, um, yeah, I guess I sort of brought a similar thinking to this as I as I did to my. My docs, but uh, honestly, there's 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 much less music in this than. Last question: This is your first dramatic feature film, which is a pretty amazing piece of work. What do you, if you step back and said, "There's one thing I've learned that I would have liked to have known before I started this one, but now I know it, so on the next one, I'll know this." Um, there's probably a lot of things, but. I don't know. I don't really look at life like that. I think you sort of, there's a, you make your decisions and I don't like to sort of look look back and, and second guess often what I did. I, so much of what I do is instinctual for better or for worse, I guess. And um, I know, and I can look back on every single frame in the film and know why I did what I did. Um, and And I don't know if I would have changed that because those are the decisions I made at the time. And, um, you know, I think, I, I talked about it earlier, but I think, I guess just the hardest thing for me was, was the sort of scheduling it, of it all. So I think spending a little bit more time really um, playing that and pushing as hard as possible, at least for a film like this, to try to shoot more sequentially. I knew that that's what I wanted to do. But given our budget, that just wasn't possible. But I think I probably would have pushed harder to do that. But it wasn't. It wasn't feasible. It wasn't feasible with with the constraints that we had. So what what, what feasible what, that you had? You've given us an incredibly difficult, challenging, and hopefully inspiring piece of work to remind us of who we are as human beings and what our responsibilities are to each other. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll have a lot more for you in the coming weeks as awards season approaches, including Q&As from Alfonso Cuaron, David McKenzie, and Steve McQueen, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. <laughs>